Amen. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, Lord, indeed, you alone can rescue. And that's what I read in today is about the, our helplessness, our inability to rescue ourselves. You alone can do that task. So, Lord, we pray now for your Holy Spirit to move amongst us. Teach us the truth that we cannot save ourselves. We are completely dependent on you and we need to be saved. If there's anyone here today, Lord, who does not know, has not tasted your love in your salvation offered at Calvary, we pray, Lord, your Holy Spirit will penetrate their hearts with your truth. To the rest of us, Lord, remind us of the beauty of the fact you saved us when we were without hope. We ask you, Lord, to be with us now. In the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. There was a man who had two sons. These are the introductory words Jesus uses to what is commonly known as the parable of the prodigal son. And we all know the story, right? The younger son asked the father, give me my money, runs away to a, an exotic land, wastes all his money on, quote, wild living, unquote. And later, in the parable, the Bible tells us that his money was likely, again I quote, squandered with prostitutes, unquote. So Junior wastes all his money on immoral living and finds himself starving. Figuring out it is better for him to be a servant in his father's home, he sheepishly returns home. Our favorite part of this parable comes when the father, seeing his son probably fairly slowly walking back to the house, not knowing what to expect, sees him from afar, the father runs out, greets him, welcomes him back into the family, undeservedly restored to his previous privileged position of son. A story of the father's radical forgiveness, extreme compassion, and our own general unworthiness, a beautiful illustration of God's perfect patience and love for us, his children. So why am I using this to introduce Romans chapter 2? The parable does not finish. Perhaps in your mind, in your memory, it finishes on the restoration. But the parable does not finish with the restoration of the younger child. In fact, I'm not even sure that God's joy in a repentant sinner is the main purpose of this parable. If it was, why did it not stop at that point? Do you remember who Jesus is telling this story to? Let me just find that. Do you remember who Jesus is telling this story to? The Pharisees and the scribes. And that's why he finishes it with the tension to the older brother. Now, the elder brother is a good, upstanding son. He worked hard for his father. He never dreamed of breaking the rules. He 
the thought of wild living and everything associated with what his younger brother was doing would have disgusted him. He was the perfect son and is more than a bit miffed when his younger brother is treated so well upon his return. He believes he deserves better than Junior because he would never dream of deserting his father for a life of parties, pigs, and prostitutes. He has labored hard for his father's approval and therefore deserves equal, no, better treatment than his toe rag of a younger brother. And the parable leaves with this issue hanging, unresolved. The self-righteous, smug, religious, hypocritical Pharisees are left staring into a mirror with their mouths opening and closing like a fish out of water. Well, that's okay for us, isn't it? After all, we're not Pharisees, are we? We would never behave like that, would we? We're the younger brother, tasting the love of the the compassionate father, not the self-righteous, holier-than-thou hypocrite. Are we not? So how am I going to jump from the parable of the two sons to Romans chapter 2? Like this, Romans chapter 2, verse 1. You, therefore, have no excuse who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. Two weeks ago, Bob preached from the end of Romans 1. And there we saw a detailed description of the lifestyle of the prodigal son. And you can read all the sordid details of his life in Romans 1, 26 and following. It isn't pretty. And today, we live among people who are, chapter 1, verse 29, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit and malice. They are, verse 30, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. In short, they are prodigal. Clearly, those people need the gospel, right? Clearly, we can all see that. Go to Edinburgh, to the drug roads of Edinburgh, Glasgow. Go to Luton, to the street ladies. But dare I say, go to Westminster. You can see a gospel need there. But we're not like that, are we? Older brother, we're not like that, are we? You see, implied in this view I've just described is the very view that they are different to us. We're not too bad. We're not too shabby. We, we, We scrub up pretty good for Sundays. Put my shirt on my wife to iron the collar. We keep the law of the land. We give to charities. We make sure we're pretty good to most of our neighbors. We don't do hard drugs. We wouldn't consider ourselves living the life of the prodigal son, nor the life described in Romans 1. Therefore, we should be all right with God, surely. Surely, we're not like them. But like the Pharisees looking in the mirror of the parable of the prodigal son, we too must face our reflection in Romans chapter 2. Because here, Paul 
slowly turns the big guns of the gospel, he's been aiming at the pagans, he turns them around 180 degrees until the good, squeaky clean, church-going, religious, self-righteous people are staring down the same barrel. So today I want to talk about three characters in the text. Three persons that we need to understand if we are going to appreciate the gospel of Christ, the power of God unto salvation. And these three people I'd like to describe to you from this text is the harsh critic, the fair judge, and the great equalizer. The harsh critic. The first type of person we meet in Romans chapter 2 is the person Paul is addressing. Note that when Paul described the godless pagans in chapter 1, note that he referred to them in the third person. He says this, they suppress the truth. They claim to be wise. God gave them over. That's the end of chapter 1, talking about the pagans. In chapter 2, he switches to the first person, the second person. Paul is addressing the reader directly. Look at, look at the text, verse 1. It's no longer they, verse 1. You, therefore, have no excuse. You are condemning yourself. You who pass judgment do the same things. Verse 3. Do you think you will address, uh, escape God's judgment? Verse 5. You are storing up wrath against yourself. You notice the focus change. They, those outside, the people that we would not associate. Now Paul is pointing his bony finger at us and says, You! In chapter 2, Paul brings his argument much closer to home. Here he addresses the reader, that's us, directly. And I call this hypothetical critic because it would be unkind to say that's really us, right? It's just a... It's really, we, we still want to think it's them, not us, right? So let's call him a hypothetical reader, because of how we're reading it. I call his hypothetical reader the harsh critic, and see how Paul describes him. In verse 1, we see the self-righteous person. He's later described as being religious, setting himself up, and here's the key, as a judge of those people in Romans chapter 1. He is the Pharisee of Luke chapter 18, who looks at the publican tax collector and praises God that he's not like that dirty sinner. He is the person of James chapter 2, who loves to welcome the rich into the church, but tells the poor to sit on the floor. He is the, the present-day churchgoer, who is disgusted at his neighbor's homosexual lifestyle, but turns a blind eye to his own lustful desires. That's the person Paul is talking to. And for some reason, inexplicable to us, he thinks that the louder he tuts, the louder he shows his disapproval at other people's sin, the more righteous he becomes. And he seems to get away with it. People respect him for the stand he takes on the sin of Romans chapter 1. But God's word and Paul can diagnose somebody's heart better than any angiogram. Look at verse 3 for this diagnosis. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, 
Do you think you will escape God's judgment? This angiogram has given us three things here. First of all, this harsh critic, all he's doing in his unloving judgment of everybody he looks down on, all he's doing is proving that he knows the standard. That's all he's doing. He knows what it says in Romans chapter 1. The, extent, the external standard he is judging others on condemns himself internally. Second, this man demonstrates an amazing ignorance of God's knowledge of our lives. He's acting as if he can fool God. He knows the standard, and he knows internally he breaks this daily. He breaks the measure which he uses to judge others. And yet he thinks God will somehow overlook his transgression because for some reason his sin isn't as bad as the sin in Romans chapter 1. And third, by thinking that his sin is somehow overlooked by God, he believes himself to be exempt, exempt from the only hope he will ever have to be forgiven his sins. He believes he doesn't need the gospel, and so he vaccinates, he inoculates himself from the power of God until salvation because he thinks he is so upright comparing himself to the people of Romans 1, he doesn't need to be saved. Surely I'm right with God. Surely my lifestyle impresses God enough to get me to heaven, not like those dirty, rotten sinners. And there are churches all over this world which encourage this view and therefore keep people who need the truth from the truth. And this last point, that these people think they are right with God but are not. This last point is the reason why Paul writes Romans chapter 2. This self-righteous, churchy, religious hypocrite needs to stop looking at the sins of others which make him feel better and instead deal with the hidden sins of his own heart. He needs the gospel just as much as those in Romans chapter 1, but he thinks he doesn't. He is in that way in a worse position from those in Romans chapter 1. It is a very dangerous place to be in. How dangerous? Read verse 5. Because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God is not turning a blind eye to their sin. He is not overlooking their iniquity on account of their country club membership or because of their christening or even because of their church attendance. God is, in fact, holding them more accountable because they demonstrate they know what's wrong in the other people. They know God's standard. They just don't think it applies to them. And God's wrath is storing up like that reservoir last month at Whaley Bridge. The water level is rising. The dam is structurally unsound. And when it breaks, nothing will stop the wrath of God destroying all that stands in its path. Verse 5, when he reveals his righteous judgment. 
And that brings us to our second portrait, that of the fair judge. If we are the harsh critic, hypothetically, hypocritically, sorry, judging others for the sins we overlook in ourselves, we need to know there is another judge, not at all like us, a fair judge. Look at verse 4. A kind judge, a forbearing judge, a patient judge. And we read in verse 11, that judge does not show favoritism. A completely impartial judge. Sounds fair, right? Sounds like the kind of judge judge we'd want, doesn't it? That may surprise you, but an impartial judge is exactly the opposite the harsh critic in chapter 2 wants. He is, he is counting on the judge showing favoritism. Those dirty sinners, but not me. Me who does the same things as them. He's counting on favoritism with the judge. You see, only the innocent want a fair, impartial judge. That's the last thing a guilty person wants, especially one who is omniscient. The harsh critic of chapter 2, is relying on God judging him differently to the way he himself has been condemning those godless sinners from chapter 1. Dirty, rotten sinners, pagans. Most people think that Paul is talking to the Jewish people of his time, and when he aims the sights of his gospel towards the religious hypocrite in this text, if that's so... The harsh critic of Paul's time will be relying on his genealogy, his circumcision, saved by surgery, or his regular attendance at the feasts to impress God the judge into turning the blind eye on the other things he does. How things changed? There are religious people sitting in churches all over this country today who think that they are better off than those sleeping at home, nursing their hangovers. And importantly, they believe that based on some special formula, God will show favoritism to them. He will not judge them based on the same criteria as those non-religious pagans. Why not? Because here's some excuses. You can take your pick. God won't judge my sin because I go to church, unlike those dirty, rotten sinners. Or... God won't judge my sin because I've been christened, unlike those heathen pagans. Or, God won't judge my sin because I come from a good Christian family, unlike my neighbor. Or, God won't judge my sin because I read my Bible. Interestingly, Paul actually addresses this last one in verses 12 to 16. And in, in this section, Paul tells us the relationship between God's law, as revealed in the Bible, and his judgment. And he says two things which I like to draw out here. First, in verse 13, he says, Knowing God's law is not what helps. Doing God's law is the important thing. Now, we know that God's law is a schoolmaster. We understand that. But here, he's coming from a different point. All the Jewish people who could recite vast tracts of Old Testament scripture didn't help them at all. Doing that, if they could keep it all, would help, which they couldn't. In fact, knowing the standard only condemns us further because we have better <laughs> knowledge and we don't keep it. 
The second thing, in verse 15, those without God's law, today, those who have never opened their Bibles, will be judged based on... uh, Excuse me, judge based upon aspects of God's law that they know from their heart, programmed by their conscience. Everybody has glimpses of God's law programmed naturally in their hearts. Everybody has a conscience which we try to sear as we live a life of sin, but it's still there. But this does mean that ignorance is no defense of the law. There is enough of God's law in our heart, in the heart of the person who's never darkened the doorsteps of a church. There is enough of God's law in his heart to convict him. It doesn't matter what their logic is. It hasn't changed in the 2,000 years since this epistle was written, this book was written to the Romans. They do believe God will overlook their sin. They believe God shows favoritism. And he doesn't. Verse 16. He is fair. And that gives us a huge problem. Because we are guilty. Now remember Paul is targeting the religious man here. The man who believes that he should escape judgment because of a religious system he has invented to impress God. There's only one problem. They're trying to impress God with a system they invented. And that system goes against The God way we are to approach God, which is through Jesus Christ's sacrifice at Calvary. In fact, their way, because it avoids God's way, despises the cross. And in doing so, it insults God. Which brings us to our final point. The great equalizer. So far we've met the harsh critic, the legalist, who loudly shouts, Amen, brother, to Paul, when he confronts the pagans in chapter 1. Preach it, brother. Tell those dirty, rotten toe rags that they're sinners. But then believes that God will turn a blind eye to their own iniquity. We've also met the fair judge, he who shows no partiality. And this gives the harsh critic a major problem. He is going to be judged to the same standard as the pagan. So, if all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, which we have, and our good works, our religion and rituals cannot drain the dam of wrath which we've stored up against ourselves, where is our hope? Does Paul dangle an impossible carrot when he refers in verses 7 and 10 to eternal life, to glory, to honor, and to peace? No. Now the key to what Paul means here will be further revealed as we go through the book of Romans in verses, in chapters 3, the rest of chapter 2 and chapter 3 especially. But it's hinted at today in verse 16. In verse 16 it says, On that day when, according to my gospel... God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Two aspects of that, according to my gospel, which is actually the gospel of God, and when he judges by the secrets of men by the secrets, excuse me, when he judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Two aspects. And those two aspects are our hope. Christ Jesus and the gospel of God. 
the great equaliser of all men is the gospel. No Gentile, no Jew, no king, no beggar, no intellectual, no simple person, no Romans chapter 1 pagan or no Romans chapter 2 religious man, no man or woman will have any advantage or disadvantage when Jesus judges them by the gospel. It is the great equaliser. And if you keep coming to hear the rest of our series through the book of Romans, you'll appreciate more and more of that. But I cannot let you go today without covering that, just in case you don't come back again. We're all level before Calvary. Before the cross, there's not one person who stands taller than the other. And that level we are on is a low level. As the hymn says, a worm such as I And Paul takes the first three chapters of the book of Romans to convince us that all mankind stands accused and guilty of offending God. Summarized in Romans 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It is the great equalizer. We all have sinned. We all are guilty. I am guilty. But then... The great equalizer is presented as a solution in Romans chapter 10 when it says, for everyone, it's open to everyone, only the elect will respond, but it's open to everyone. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. All have sinned, but everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. You see, just as a sin and condemnation is universal, Jesus was the Lamb of God who was sent to take away the sins of the world. And anyone who believes and will submit to him as Lord will be forgiven their sin and will have eternal life. So what is the good works and patient well-doing that Paul spoke about in our text today? It's the good deeds that we do after we have submitted to Jesus as Savior. It can't be good deeds to save us because Paul writes that we are not saved by our works we're not saved by our deeds, not by keeping the law. In fact, Paul talks poorly of the religious deeds in Romans chapter 11. He says this of the Pharisees, since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Two ways. Our own righteousness, which offends God and gets judgment, or God's righteousness, only available through Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter how many charitable works, how many prayers, ritual, or law-keeping they did. The offense in rejecting God's provided means of righteousness, Jesus Christ, sacrificed for the forgiveness of sin, the offense of rejecting the Lamb of God is so horrific, it cannot be overlooked by wearing a collared shirt to church on Sundays or saying a couple of prayers. God made away. Jesus died that all who believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. Do you believe? Do you believe? Because then you're accredited with Christ's righteousness. And then as a Christian you can continue in the good works that God has set up for you. And based only on your position in Christ and not your own effort Eternal life is yours. If you don't believe, 
that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, is God the Son, the perfect sacrifice without spot or blemish, who died for the sins of the world, who was resurrected three days later, who is now in heaven. If you don't believe that, then no amount of good work will overcome the offense that you have between you and God caused by you despising the cross. The gospel is the great equalizer. Nobody, nobody, nobody is good enough to get to heaven without it. But there is no sinner so bad, so far from God, that the gospel cannot reconcile him to God. To conclude, have you responded to the gospel? Perhaps not. Perhaps it's because you have not heard it before. Well, today you have. What will you do with that knowledge? Romans 2 says you will be judged by the light that you have, the knowledge that you have. You've been told that you are not good enough to heaven in your own words, in your own works, but through Christ and through Christ alone you can be reconciled to God. That is the light you now have. What will you do with that knowledge? Otherwise, you'll just be treasuring up wrath, storing up the dam at Whaley Bridge is getting higher and higher. The rain is falling. All the schnooks in the world cannot drop enough of sandbags to prevent that from failing. No man will be able to withstand the wrath of God when that dam breaks. Unless, unless the dam has been drained. And there is one who has done that for all who believe in him. Jesus Christ has drained the cup, in this metaphor, the, the dam of God's wrath. He's drained it dry and he's emptied the dregs. He is both the good judge of verse 16 and the gospel of verse 16. He is the great equalizer who will appease the fair judge even for the harsh critic. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank God for the cross. Thank you, Lord. Thank you so much, Lord, for the fact that it's not our works, it's not up to us, it's not law, it's not keeping, keeping tradition. It's nothing we do that can rescue us from the wrath of God, your wrath, Lord. When we say we need to be saved, it is not from ourselves. it is not from our sin, it is not from Satan, it is not from the devil, Lord. We need to be saved from the wrath of God because we have offended you. And Lord, you have provided a means of salvation through Jesus. Lord, I pray for those millions of people who are trying to set up their own form of righteousness and just increasing the offense against you. And I pray, Lord, for us. I pray, Lord, that if there's anyone in this room who has not yet yielded only to the grace and mercy of Calvary, I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will keep on convicting them until they fall to their knees. And I pray, Lord, if they need more questions, they'll speak to a Christian friend of theirs. And for the rest of us, Lord, may we rest in the beauty 
of your gospel. Rest in the knowledge that we were those legalistic religious people. We were those pagans of chapter 1. And now we've been born again by your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the gospel, Lord. Thank you for setting us free. Thank you for breaking those chains that religion and self-righteousness held us to. Thank you, Lord, for your amazing grace. This we pray in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Our last song is Amazing Grace. My chains are gone.